Welcome to Elemental Collision. My name is Dave Graham. Today we're talking with Vikas Shah, and we're going to discuss a whole bunch of stuff, including philanthropy, community, and thought economics. Join us for the conversation. Everyone, I am proud to actually in one of those random associations again, you know, a person tells another person. <laughs> I'm here to, with uh, Vikas Shah of uh, Thought Economics, right? And a whole yeah. host of other really cool things. And so uh, today, Vikas, what we wanted to do is talk about you a little bit, talk about what you're doing. And, you know, as I ask everybody, we're going to start with community and what community means. Yeah. So why not provide a little bit of introduction to yourself and then we can kind of dive right in. Yeah. So hi, everyone. So I'm Vikas and I've got one of those odd lives, you know, how everyone on Twitter now Instead of saying, I am a this, they have the, I am a this, this, and this. So my this, this, and this is business, teaching, and philanthropy. So I own um, a bunch of businesses here in the UK, and we invest in startups and scale-ups around the world. Um, I, I also teach at a couple of universities as a uh, professor of entrepreneurship on MBA programs. And um, through our own foundation and working with other donors, we work with uh, charities in the UK and internationally mainly around um, peace building and poverty alleviation. Well, that's, and I have two cats. Well, <laughs> two, two cats sets the, sets the table. I've, I, I was joking with Naomi, because uh, we both know Naomi Timberley, um, you know, that we have cats that seem to involve themselves in every aspect of our lives, right? You know, they, they do. Of... And, and, and now that I'm back at the office post lockdown, I kind of miss them because normally like Sam would be here. So <laughs> just, just staring at you to make sure everything's going okay. That's all right. I always like it when they stop, pause, turn around, and all you have is, you know, cat butt, which, which yeah. happens. So, Eclect, how did you get into, let's, let's say, the entrepreneurial, you know, side of what you do? I mean, that's, everybody has an interesting story about that. Like, how did you, yeah. how did you end up in that place? So, I, th I think like, like a lot of people that end up in there, it was kind of largely by accident, right? So, so I, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be an airline pilot. That was the dream. Um, but becoming a pilot is really expensive. So when That's I was <laughs> a lot, when I was like a lot younger, um, I basically started doing kind of freelance web design work, um, ba basically to pay for flying lessons, right? Yeah. Um, but then the, the 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 business started doing this, and I realized sometimes how much pilots earn. So that dream kind of went this way, and and it just it just opened up a whole new area of life that I actually never knew I'd be interested in. And, um, and yeah, and that, that, that's how I ended up not having a real job ever. Real job is what you make of it, right? You know, I, I, think <laughs> yeah. I always like to make the definition, you know, the, the distinction clear between a career and a job. A job is something you do, a career is something exactly. that you want to do, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, it's how you, that's that overall trajectory in life. So entrepreneurship to uh, philanthropy. That, that's that's also kind of, sometimes we see those at odds with each other certainly at, at certain points. Yeah. So how did that, I mean, how did I, that come about? I, I think it, it's a shame sometimes that they are seen at odds, though I totally acknowledge that that often they are. And so, so for me, it was um, so. So in the UK and Europe, philanthropy tends to be something you do in your will when you die or when you're retired and have nothing else to do, and that's a real shame. So, what, what my my first business um, ended up doing a lot of work in the US. So, at quite an early stage of my career, I was out on the West Coast and East Coast, you know, meeting lots of businesses there. And I just love the fact that in the US, you know, a lot of these other entrepreneurs who were still young, still on their journey, were really actively involved in, in nonprofits. You know, they were giving their time, their money, their resources. And, and it just seemed like a really 
it seemed like the right thing to do because you know you're only here by accident you're only where you are in life by accident it could have been easily that the that that you know circumstances were very different so um i kind of at a very early stage decided that the, the right and proper thing to do if you've been lucky enough to achieve some some success is is to just do as much as you can to you know leave a good footprint on the world right well, that's a, that's a that's a, that's a great mindset to have i think we Again, I, the, the difficulty here is everybody gets tossed into this accumulate wealth as much as possible, right? Because you're setting yourself up for the rest of your life. And I actually had the pleasure of talking to uh, Esther. So Carol Rossborough and, and the folks that, that are working over there. And one of the emphasis and things that she found was that people where she expected people to be giving, you know, in the later stages, mm-hmm. if you will, actually was inverted. A lot of folks were just looking for that opportunity to give yeah. within the excess of what they may or may not have, you know, if it's a tenner here, or, you know, $50 or exactly. something that's able to give in there. I think we always look for the, the grandized moment of I'm Warren Buffett and I can toss down $10 billion or yeah. Bill Gates or whatever, but it really starts small. It, it never has to be these large deposits of cash to, to things. So, And it's also, it's not just cash, it's network, right? It's, it, it's when you are, you know, when you're at the kind of peak point in your career, You've got that network around you of other businesses, of other individuals. You know, it might be that you're well known for a particular period of time. And that all can be leveraged to, you know, raise awareness where necessary or, frankly, to bring in the money for, for big projects where needed too. And um, and it's like I said, you know, for every one person in the world that does well, there's thousands and thousands and thousands who never get the same opportunity or 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 just don't have an economic system around them that would allow them to do it. So. I think to coin a kind of odd metaphor, if you're at a dinner party and you're the only person eating, you'd feel bad. But that's that's the reality of how economics works. Yeah. And we have to see it like that. Oh, that's I, I, I can picture that metaphor, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it, it's apropos, I, I, I suppose, in that. So bringing us to what I usually ask everybody, you know, so within philanthropy, within every, you know, your context, what, how do you view community? What is it? What is it realized? to you it's strange isn't it because when when you say community there's often this kind of knee jerk to have this warm fuzzy feeling where you're thinking about you know the kind of sunday parade in your local village or the <laughs> or the you know the, the small shop or that local grocer that you've always been to but 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 community is just kind of that collection of individuals and resources that you participate in and who have a stake in your life. And I think, you know, because we are all mobile and connected, I think that's probably the only definition we can have because we exist in many communities now as opposed to just one. And even if we go back a century, we typically had a community. It would have been the other factory workers you lived and worked with. That that was basically it, you know or the landowner to whom you were in servitude. There was this, a community. But now we have a stake in lots of people's lives and they have a stake in ours. And that is our community. Well, I like that. I'm, I'm going to have to use that at some point. <laughs> uh, when you look at community and, and you, you, I think you rightly called it out and said, you know, it used to be very nuclear, right? It used to be, this is who, mm-hmm. you know, where I exist, my little bubble, so to speak. In, in this day and age where everything has changed, right? We now are away from an office. Most of my, I know you're in an office today, which you know, 
I, I kind of miss my office, to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, where we have this kind of diaspora, if you will, away from mm -hmm. offices, away from social gatherings, really, in, in the aspects of safety and obviously good faith towards each other. Do you see that technology is enabling different types of community now, or do you see there an, uh, do you see a kind of a negative aspect of that? I think that there's, you know, we're still quite um, early insofar as humanity's relationship to social media. And by that, I mean, fundamentally anything that can allow you to broadcast and receive simultaneously, that, that's really new. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really have anything like that before, apart from talking to each other. And so I think people are still figuring out what does that mean? You know, and we saw at the beginning of lockdown, for a lot of people who don't use it day to day, there was a huge novelty and everyone was doing you know, Zoom quizzes and all sorts yeah. of things and it all got kind of tired really quickly. And what you ended up with is this kind of like the hype cycle of, oh my God, what can we do with this technology? And then just the reality of, you know, what am I going to say to someone? I've just been in lockdown another week. I haven't got any news for you. And it starts to almost become burdensome where you, you know, as we all do as human beings, we end up try, you know, loading ourselves with more and more expectations of having to post this or having to jump on the friend's Zoom call or whatever. So, so I think there's a balance where in the right situations, so it might be that you have, you know, a, a hobby or interest or something, and you're able to find people that share that brilliant. It might be that you're quite an isolated individual and it's your only way to really reach out to friends and family. Great. But I do think that it also opens up the opportunity, A, for it to become a substitute for real human interaction. And we know from all the studies that we need real world human interaction for our mental well-being. Um, but it can also become a substitute for for actually getting out there in the world and, 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 and moving forward. Because you know, even in the office environment, I'm a massive advocate for there to be a balance between working at home, working in the office. But there's so much that happens from that collision of being around people. So, so I think we are still, as a society, getting used to the role of these technologies in our lives. And the pandemic has been a really interesting test of this. And it's been a really interesting kind of experiment in what these technologies mean. And I think it will take a few years for us to really adapt into a flow with it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're seeing that through education, right? That's a mm. huge part with the kids going back to school right now, having to relearn socialization in the context of, I can't just reach out and go to a playground or I can't just reach out and you know pass a note in class anymore. It's now chat through Zoom or Google Meet or something along that line. In the same yeah. way as adults, I think you called it out very, very specifically. It's, it, it's almost this... Um, I talked way back at the beginning of this whole journey that I'm on about being fake fine. There's a song by a guy named Robert Grace about fake fine. You know, you present this kind of mask to the world and zoom allows you to do that a lot, or these kind of media yeah. allow you to do that. I can present to the world in social media, one thing while I am truly existing on mm -hmm. a different level of, you know, personhood or, you know, uh, called pathology or whatever it ends up being. Right. Yeah. So I think that we, that, we, we kind of, I mean, we kind of forget we're human, right? Like, it's really easy to think of ourselves as these really super advanced creatures that that can exist in these digital domains. But we're animals, right? Yeah. And and that means that actually, you know, after you know billions of years of evolution, means that there are certain things wired into us that mean that we need to be together. We need to be in the same room. We need to touch each other and hug. And you know, there's certain things that we need to do, not because you know 
of how I feel or how you feel, but it's just the way that we as a species are hardwired. And removing ourselves from those kind of interactions does have consequences. And we're already seeing that, you know, through several organizations I'm involved in, we're already seeing a massive increase in, you know, mental health challenges and all of those kind of, you know, real pathologies that occur from a lack of human contact. So talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you're involved in on site here. I mean, I, I, I know in pre-brief, we talked a little bit about some of these conflict uh, areas and, you know, and yeah. other things, but yeah, look, go into that a little bit for me. So I, I've always looked at it with a, with a view of rather than it being for me, cause-based that it's not, you know, it's not that I have gone through this experience and therefore I want to support this charity or this cause it's always been more, where can I add value? You know, where can I bring my network or capital or whatever it is to add value? And, and it seems to have been that over the years, that's kind of fallen into poverty alleviation. So we work with charities involved in homelessness and with marginalized people and with kind of conflict and peace building um, with, with international communities and with things involving sustainable development. So it might be you know, providing microfinance to young people to build a project somewhere or even providing entrepreneurship training. So there's definitely sort of some very distinct areas. And like I said, I think the the thing that I would always advise people is don't get hung up on a cause just because you might feel passionate about it. Try and really explore what a different organization's doing, understand how the sector works, where can you add value? Because that's the rewarding bit. And part of that's discomfort should spur you to action, right? You know, we all, I, I was talking to a couple of folks over this, past week and it's Tuesday now. So within the past week about, you know, we have that, we have that idea of the pleasure principle, right? Freudian, very, very Freudian in nature. We gravitate towards things that bring us pleasure and we run away from things that cause us pain. But even in that, there's a, there's a true axiom to be, to be, to be talked about that discomfort spurs us to action. It should spur us Mm -hmm. towards doing things for others, whether it be in an altruistic sense or, or in some way that, you know, comforts and provides emotional support or relief to us. So I think it's very apropos what you're saying. It's not just look at what makes you always feel good, but look at the things that cause discomfort. Look at the things that, you know, kind of give you that edge and make grit your teeth a little bit because homelessness, for example, affects us all in a way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Our communities, whether it be geographic or social or however it ends up being shaped, affects us all. You know, from a very pure capitalist sense, it drags down aspects of the economy. But in a sociological sense, it also shows us the depravity of humankind. What led Mm. us to this point? What yeah, what what can we do to engender yeah. you know better fee- better things for the folks that are around us and how do we care for our own and we don't really have we don't really have society in the same way that 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 we we always have you know there was what what we now call philanthropy and and, and in many ways charity was just how communities worked before you know it was it was the case that communities had a sense of bonding and and you you did look after people in your community if they fell on hard times and and there was a sense of being in this together. And we we feel like that because we can go to the Park Slope Cooperative and get our, you know, locally sourced avocado or whatever from someone that we know. But but that's that's kind of a fake, that's kind of a that's not really a community. That's just a group of people with shared interest. You know, would you give that person your sofa or your couch to sleep on if they fell on hard times? You know, community resilience is, is, is very different. And part of the reason is that if you think about kind of um, the number of people along, sorry, the number of people along this axis and 
income on this axis, you know, whereas society used to have a nice curve, you've now got kind of spike, mm -hmm. spike, yeah. spike. And not only though, you know, are people now in very distinct groups, but as groups are getting further and further away from each other. Yeah. So between poverty and middle class is now further and it's expanding and between middle class and wealth is now expanding and between wealth and ultra wealth is now expanding. Yeah. And so as these groups distance more and more from each other, you start getting in-group, out-group biases. And the net result of that is more otherization between groups. And we start to use awful language like supporting the poor rather than supporting the person that I know. Yeah. yeah and it's different because we, we, we tend to look at, yeah, it's something you call out. We tend to look at them as, as an isolated class. We tend to look mm -hmm. at these people as... Uh, I've been reading a little bit about some of the caste systems, right, in India. Mm -hmm. you know, and so you look at that kind of separation that automatically draws this kind of virtual boundary between people exactly. for no other reason than social class, you know, than this artificial class or boundary Correct. of you don't have enough money or you don't have enough, you know, privilege or you don't have enough stuff. Yeah. I think we've seen that kind of even in the social revolutions that have gone on this year, very apropos given, you know, the murders that have happened. You know, you have people that are agitating for change because they see such a distinct boundary that's artificial. There's no reason why these kind of classisms or these social classes should exist. Why are we repressing, you know, BIPOC, you know, or, you know, to the, to the you know, benefit of, you know, loosely implied of, you know, privileged white mm -hmm. Americans, you know, in, mm -hmm. in some cases, right? So I think that's, it's that agitation, that struggle. That you're calling out it's it's no longer who we are together it's who you are who i am and somehow we're going to get to some place that's better <laughs> i don't i, I struggle yeah. with this a lot you know but this is but, but the, i think i think the education system you know all over the world definitely has a role to play in this because you know we're, we're taught about science and math and literature and all these things mm. but there's very few education systems in the world um, at least within democracies, you know, weirdly enough, authoritarian states are very good at this. But within democratic or pseudo-democratic parts of the world, there's very few places that really teach you civics, right? Yeah. And by civics, I don't just mean, uh, you know, the study of civic history and the history of democracy, but I mean, how does a community work? How does voting work? How does politics work? What does it mean to be part of a community? You know, because... A, it shows people therefore how to um, participate and how to protest and how to create change. But it also teaches you to spot what are the real reasons for um, an, an oppression or what are the real reasons for something to be the way it is. And without civics education, you end up basically assigning everything to a particular bias mm -hmm. or you can assign everything to, you know, the, the wrong cause. You know, it's, it's the kind of, correlation versus cause fallacy that you see so much within everywhere you know every industry yeah you end up tokenizing you know like hey you yeah. know martin luther king awesome guy he, he gave a speech you know i had a dream and then you leave it on the steps of the lincoln memorial you know you mm. don't move it from there because all you're doing is taking him and context of history putting him there you don't focus on what brought you to this change and we have uh, I think you know you brought it up. You know, we teach a lot of the call hard sciences, math, science, and all these kind of things, but we don't focus around who we are. 
you know, that's that civics yeah. aspect of that's, we, we call them soft sciences, sociology, psychology, anthropology, but you don't yeah. realize that all that feeds this worldview. You know, we tend to be very insular in America, right? You know, mm-hmm. as, as you, as we have demonstrated pretty hardcore in the last four years, you know, not, not, I had somebody tell me the other day that America is a dumpster fire and I had to start laughing because I, well, parts see- of it are, parts yeah, of it are. absolutely, you know, yeah. I was, I was, I was, I was in New York, right. At the beginning just before lockdown, there, there was, it's just another day really. Oh, and then you, you know, you, you, you travel more into the kind of Midwest and, and places and you, and you can, you can feel it, but, but this is the, this is the thing, you know, when you, when you're approaching philanthropy, you know, you, you've got to understand what is the real cause. And that means that you, you need to shut out sometimes the noise of social media and so on. So I'll, I'll give you one example. Equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome are two very, very different things, right? Yeah. Equality of opportunity means everyone gets the chance to have a seat at the table. Equality of outcome would mean everyone gets the same grade at the end of it. Mm-hmm. You kind of don't want that, but you do want everyone to have a seat at the table. So... So when you're creating a philanthropic intervention, so for example, if your aim is to get more people of color into the legislature, to be able to make policy and make decisions, right? A lot of people think of that as an equality, as an equality of outcome problem. The outcome being, well, we don't have enough people of color at the table in the Senate, but it isn't. It's an equality of opportunity problem because not enough people of color got into law a few years ago, meaning that they're not there now, yeah. right? So, so the right thing for a philanthropist to do is, okay, let's fund more people of color to get into this area of study. But, but this is the nuance of creating solutions. It, it, you know, People are hurting, people are feeling a lot of pain right now for many reasons. Mm-hmm. But some of these problems will take a, few, you know, a generation to fix because they, they, they weren't created overnight either. Yeah. yeah and it's that longitudinal problem. I, I had this when I worked in social exactly. services. You know, it's like, I want to see this fixed tomorrow, you know, just, just because I got you housing credits for, for the day and I want this to be, be realized doesn't mean it's, you know, in a year from now, if you're asking for the same thing, it's disheartening because you don't see that change immediately, right? You don't see that kind of, you know, switch over, yeah. right? So it's- But but also, but it's also understanding what change you want. So so I was in New York during the um, Occupy protest. Mm-hmm. And I remember actually, cause I, you know, I love to kind of interact with the protesters and I was like, so, so, so what do you want? And they were like, you know, we want these effing bankers to do this. And there was a lot of anger towards them. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what do you want as a solution? Well, that's not our problem. Government needs to sort it out. And I'm like, well, you, you can't, that's, that's not how it works. Yeah. You know, you can't just, if you want change, you have to understand the problem and have an idea of what the solution is that you want. So, but this is again, civics and an understanding of community and an understanding of the dynamics of the different stakeholders in a community. Oh yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that. And I know we're running up on time. So thought economics, give me the, uh, give me the one minute spiel of what thought economics is about. I know it's coming yeah. next year. Talk to yeah, me. So, so, so thought economics started off as a hobby in 2007, where I just thought, you know, I was getting annoyed by the fact that a lot of my favorite publications were switching more to kind of infographics and editorialized uh, pieces rather than long form content. So I started into interviewing people that I knew or I'd met 
And then, you know, I started to see, oh, wow, lots of people are kind of enjoying reading this. And I started just to reach out to people, you know. And then before you know it, you know, I'm on the phone to like Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> doing like an hour and a half long form interview with him and then putting it as long form text and traffic builds. And then it's created this whole thing where Thought Economics is now a collection of interviews with the people that have shaped the century and the people that are shaping the next century. Um, and so there's Nobel Prize winners and politicians and entrepreneurs and artists and some just really fascinating people. There's no subscription. Anyone can just go on and read it. And um, it's being turned into a book which is due for international release in February. And in that book, it's, you know, excerpts of, of, of my favorite interviews from that 12 years of, of, of speaking to these incredible people. Well, you know, even given this conversation, I know I'm going to be signing up for that. So <laughs> I'm actually happy to add Fantastic. that to my, uh, I got the shelves right up here. So yeah. <laughs> August company that you will join, I suppose. Amazing. I think Glad. I'll put you next to Gladwell because, you know, Gladwell's pretty. pretty uh, well, that <laughs> I am, I am happy with. I, I, I can deal with that. Yeah, good. Well, yeah. because I, I appreciate you taking the time on this random, you know, random Tuesday morning, you know, in mid or beginning of October. And, you know, I appreciate the, the, the willingness to have a conversation about this stuff. And, you yeah. know, when season two, uh, as I hinted at season two will be about mm -hmm. trust. I would love to have you back on because I think trust works pleasure. into all of these, these aspects of things that we've talked about even today. And by that time, yeah. maybe your book will be out and we can talk about that too. We can do a book. Exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll have it somewhere kind of here, I guess. I'll replace this painting with like a giant cover image of the book. Oh, you just put your, you can just put your face there. <laughs> that works too. Well, you know, maybe, maybe. Yeah, hubris, hubris. It's all about the hubris. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, again, thanks for, thanks for the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today at Elemental Collision. If you'd like to hear more, please go to ElementalCollision.com. Also, you can support us at Patreon.com slash Elemental Collision. Thanks for listening.